It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And that, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You can also listen online. You can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. And you can take us with you and listen anywhere you go. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show today Peter McCluskey, and he's here to talk about, uh, well, very interesting and... Uh, Thank you, um, David. It's actually Ontario Garlic Week. We're going to make the whole province stink. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, congratulations, and um, tell me a little bit about this. This is the, the first one, isn't it? That's correct, David. So, Ontario Garlic Week, it's October 29th to November 7, and we are inviting restaurants across the province uh, and breweries, drive-ins and theaters are participating as well, celebrating garlic to do a garlic dish or cocktail or beer from their location. So uh, we have locations in North Bay, um, Arn Prior, Kingston, Toronto, London, all doing a garlic dish where uh, patrons can come and uh, dine in, take out or delivery. Um, by a, an item made from Ontario garlic, made including Ontario garlic. Right. When you said brewery, I, I was going, I don't know of any, any alcohol made out of garlic. Is there such a thing? Well, actually, at the, in past years at the festival, we've had breweries make um, beer with garlic. And the, in this, this for Ontario Garlic Week, um, Cayman Kettle Brewery is doing a black garlic stout. Oh, wow. Yeah. So black garlic is a type of garlic that's the process. It's, it's subject to very low heat. It's in a container and low heat for several weeks. And it turns the garlic clove black. It's kind of got a tar, a tarry viscous texture and a flavor like licorice or tamarind or coffee. Mm-hmm. Mary's, Mary's really well, really well in desserts. Uh, we've also got a, um, a chocolatier doing a um, black garlic bonbon, mm. but, but Cayman Kettle is doing a black garlic stout. So people will go to, go to <laughs> Cayman Kettle and buy a glass of their stout. Right. Now, you're, you're a farmer. You've obviously worked with garlic. I imagine that's the whole point of, of why you wanted to sort of uh, uh, turn this up on garlic and, and have some attention brought to it. How, from what you've seen and what you've heard back from some of the people that want to participate, have you had any surprises come your way out of it? Well, I'm I'm getting a really a great geography lesson in Ontario because <laughs> okay. there's places that have signed up that I didn't I didn't know about these places. So I just mentioned Arn Prior, mm. A R N P R I O R, and um, there's a the Legion there is doing uh, going to use garlic on their Burger Fridays. Um, so that's exciting to me because there's places that are we're reaching every town and hamlet, um, Halliburton, Puss Lynch. Um, North Bay, Midland, Haley Berry, Duntroon, just to name a few. Um, wow. And the things that they're creating are are um, some. Just just one of them uh, place is doing a. Um, this is in Ottawa, um, mm-hmm. a restaurant called Thali Dal Soup with garlic bondi, um, lamb garlic lamb chops, black garlic pickle, um, things like that. That they're really creative and inventive with with the use of garlic and, and in the different cuisines that are using garlic. So this is a thing that's really exciting is it's showing off the, the incredible 
different cuisines and, and diversity we have in this province. All mm. these restaurants doing garlic from their own style, their own cuisine and culture, mm. but you, all using garlic. Yeah. Now, certainly when you mentioned garlic with chocolate, I hadn't seen that one uh, as a combination. I, I, I'm guessing it probably wouldn't be bad, actually. It's not only not bad, it's, it's really delicious. So Laura Slack is a chocolatier in Toronto, and she created a, a black garlic chocolate. It's a chocolate bar, mm. a Listat bar, and she's been selling that for years. She started, mm. she started it years ago because we invited her to try black garlic and chocolate. And I mm. think she was a little like, What's with this? who is this guy stalking me? <laughs> um, and then did it and now sells it year round. Um, and that's again the black garlic because of the the flavors it has marries so well with chocolate. Mm. This so David, this is a thing where we are showing off about Ontario garlic through all these different uses of garlic, like the beer, the black garlic. It's to open up people's imagination and and palate to mm. all the things we can do with garlic. It's not just this spicy ingredient. Yeah. Now, the other thing you mentioned there about uh, the, the garlic with, with the chocolate, um, I guess it, it also has the added value of, of being good for you. Garlic is one of those things that is, is not only tasty, but good for you, isn't it? Absolutely. There, a lot of people believe that um, garlic has great medicinal value, therapeutic value, and that's, that's been one of its, um, um, why, one reason why it's been valued for centuries mm. Um, because of that very reason. Mm. You know, I remember uh, going to visit a friend years ago and uh, <laughs> and I hadn't seen him for a while and I showed up at his door and I, I guess he, he had a cold, he was experiencing a cold and he had been chomping on, on uh, raw garlic for, uh, I don't know, a couple of days or something like that, trying to get rid of this cold. And of course, uh, when he opened the door, I was, I was hit with this wall of <laughs> aroma. Um, but, uh, it just goes. To, it, it it does have that uh, that effect, but uh, it is such a, a wonderful uh, item to put in things. Now you mentioned black garlic, and that was my next question for you: is is garlic like many other things? It has a variety of, of different kinds of garlic. There are many there, there are many varieties of garlics, roughly seven varieties. Thing, names like um, purple stripe and porcelain, um, rocambole. And then within each of those varieties, there are many strains. There are many strains of garlic. Um, so if you go to a farmer's market in Ontario or um, a, uh, buy garlic from a, fa- a farmer, and mm. we will have all these um, places listed in our map on torontogarlicfestival.ca, mm. where we have a map now, but it will be updated in the next few days. Right. You can buy many different types of garlic from, from a farmer either direct from their farm or from a farmer's market. Mm. And, right. and it's all those different types that, that is interesting to explore and the different flavor intensities and sweetness. Mm. All sounds fascinating. Now, we might have stimulated some interest in, uh, in some people that if they're either a farmer and or a restaurant owner or, as you say, or brewery or of some kind of a business that is, uh, has some unique uh, approach to u- using garlic or a combination of things that uh, recipe with garlic, how might they get a hold of you? Yeah, uh, well, go to torontogarlicfestival.ca and there you'll see a link um, where if you're a restaurant or any food or food and beverage establishment, 
Um, you can register and tell us what you're doing. Here's the criteria. You have to use Ontario garlic. Ah. That's it. It's, it's free, by the way, because, mm. thanks to a uh, generous grant from the Ministry of Tourism and, and also Live Green Toronto. Um, there's no charge. So um, it's a really fantastic opportunity to promote Ontario businesses. Mm. And we have some really great um, promotions and um, things we're doing in social media to promote this to all, the, all these remote towns that I just mentioned as well mm. through geotargeting. Is garlic difficult to grow? No, uh, if I can grow it, anyone can grow it. <laughs> um, I've been growing it for about 10 years and I started out with no background in growing. Mm. Um, and here's a quick lesson in it is you just break the bulb into the clo- into cloves, make sure it's Ontario garlic mm-hmm. and you plant the cloves um, pointy, pointy end facing up about uh, two inches deep in the soil, an inch and a half to two inches deep in the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, there's information on that again on the website, torontogarlicfestival.ca on, on how to grow garlic. Mm-hmm. It's pretty. It's quite easy. So here's the thing, David. Is if um, Ontario Garlic Week, it doesn't just mean going to a restaurant or a brewery or going to buy some uh, dish. If if uh, you're a person who wants to just celebrate Ontario Garlic and you're you're at home, you can use gar- Ontario Garlic in a dish. Spice something up with it. If you're making say mac and cheese, add some garlic to it, or some other dish that you wouldn't have thought. Add some garlic to it and share that on social media. Mm. Tell us what you're doing with garlic. Mm. Um, maybe you're, if you're planting it in your backyard, share pictures with us in social media. So there's so many ways people can participate in Ontario Garlic Week. They don't have to go to a restaurant to do that. And, it's, and then we're celebrating this incredible uh, thing that we grow here and supporting our farmers. What made you think of, of wanting to, to bring uh, this, this festival to Ontario around garlic? Well, it's funny, COVID gave us a lemon because we would have put on Toronto Garlic Festival this, this year. Mm. Uh, we've been doing the Toronto Garlic Festival since 2011, but, mm. but we, we took that lemon and turned it into minced garlic and decided to have a little bit of the festival everywhere in Ontario. So, we've, so any place we're having, any restaurant that's, that's doing a dish with garlic is a, is a kind of little instance of celebrating garlic and, and a, and a kind of a festival. Mm. So it's just, it's just bringing the, bringing the celebration and appreciation of garlic everywhere across the province. And, and, and we couldn't put on the festival because putting on a large gathering right now is a challenge, but Mm. restaurants are open um, and, and they can endure this crazy time we're in um, more easily than a large gathering. And then we're supporting the food and beverage industry, which is really, really crucial. So it's that and supporting farmers, celebrating um, our cultural diversity and supporting tourism. It, it hits a lot of interesting things. Mm. You know, the other thing I think about around garlic is I'm wondering if, if it gets a bad rap at all. And I'm wondering if this serves to raise it to a new level, perhaps. Fascinating. Good question. Yeah. So Ontario Garlic Week does do that. We've been doing that for years is is lifting garlic up. Mm. Fascinating history around garlic. I wrote a book about Ontario garlic. Mm. um, um, And in my research discovered the kind of checkered history garlic had that in maybe 30 years ago or more, um, 
certainly as far back as the 19th century and before, garlic was perceived as a um, only lower classes ate it. Mm. And it was kind of a poor man's spice. Here's an interesting story from a chef in Toronto um, <laughs> that he said growing up in, in, uh, in Trinidad, they didn't, couldn't always afford meat or fish from the market. So he said his mother would, would use garlic. And because of the rich garlic, umami flavor of garlic, it, it helped replace the flavor that they would have had from fish or meat. So he said mm. garlic was the meat in the pot. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, and so garlic, because it can be planted in so many different places, so many different climate zones in the world, it was one of these spices that anyone could grow in their backyard and, and it could be the meat in the pot for them. And versus other spices like, say, cinnamon or uh, cayenne or other or peppers could only be grown in certain local places. And that, and that way, the grower could control the supply, whereas mm. garlic could be grown anywhere and became adopted as by many social economic classes, but especially lower class. So it became this associated with my, my Bulgarian grandfather who came here a hundred years ago, who probably ate garlic and, and would have been mocked for his use of garlic. So mm. upper classes didn't use garlic. Mm. So it's really fascinating. So a, a Ukrainian lady I interviewed um, in Sudbury a few years ago said, you know, when are these, when are the Anglos going to, Wake mm. up and real and get you know stop yeah. eating their boiled ham. <laughs> when are they going to start using <laughs> garlic and recognizing that it's really good, and tasty? <laughs> right. You know, as you say that, it reminds me of uh, one of my favorite films. Um, and there's a line in it. I think uh, it's the uh, "It's a Wonderful Life." That film. Ah, uh, okay. And you might know the line I'm yeah. thinking of. Oh, I know the line. Yeah, the banker. Yeah, and the, bla- he- the banker. Um, because uh, George, the banker, wants George is wanting to support local business, and one yep. of them is the local bar run by an Italian man. Yeah, that's right. And and that's George's philosophy. And the and the nasty banker says, "What are you, what are you doing, wasting your time, helping out a bunch of garlic eaters?" That's right. Yeah, something to that effect. So yeah. that's that s- speaks a lot to what I just mm-hmm. am, am describing. And so when you talk about lifting up garlic, Ontario garlic wheat lifts up garlic. It's like, hey, you know, it's, it's this thing that we all use. We have different perceptions of it. Some, some more senior people may recall a time where they were not appreciated for the love of garlic. For younger people, they just, they just know that it's a great taste. Mm-hmm. We're discovering how it can be used in all these different things. And we're celebrating a really great crop we grow in this province. Mm-hmm. Nicely said. Now, I just want to remind everyone that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Peter McCluskey, and he is the founder of the Toronto Garlic Festival and now the new Ontario Garlic Week, which is running from Friday, October 29th through to Sunday, November 7th. And uh, if you're interested in participating or finding out more, you can go to their website. And uh, that is uh, the Ontario Garlic Week website. Correct, Peter? Yeah. If you just Google Ontario Garlic Week, Mm -hmm. you'll find us. When you were also saying one of the criteria and the only criteria, I guess, for taking part in this is it has to be Ontario grown garlic. That's right. To participate. Yeah. Um, so yeah. are you getting people that you have to turn away because they are using other types of garlic? And, and what is the difference between garlics, if there is some, grown in other areas around the world? You mean outside? outside. Well, um, 
one thing about our garlic is we grow a hard neck garlic and, and a lot of the garlic that's imported is soft neck mm. and soft neck lends itself well to lends itself to um, large scale farming. Mm. Um, the garlic farmers grow here produces a scape and you have to remove that in June so that the bulb is stronger and tastes better, mm. but that takes time and person power to remove that scape. So we, why do we grow that garlic? Cause it's an amazing garlic. Um, and it, and it tastes better. Um, so the garlic we grow here is arguably um, more versatile and robust, can be used in more, different, more types of cuisine like desserts. Um, and when I, when I crack a clove of Ontario garlic on my counter um, and, I, and do the same with uh, something imported, I can just smell the difference. Hmm. I see the difference. I don't want to, I don't want to down, I don't want to, I only want to talk positively about what, how great the Ontario garlic is. I'm sure there's some good garlic. There's mm. great garlic grown around the world. Mm. It's maybe by the time it gets here, it's not so great. And the and what, an interesting thing is someone I spoke to from China, the garlic they eat there is is really great. The garlic that's shipped here maybe is not so good because it's because it's produced under you know large scale conditions and it's mm. it's yeah. Is garlic one of those things you feel like if you establish a relationship with it, it actually re- reacts to that? Well, there's a book <laughs> I read when I was 16 called The Power of Prayer on Plants. Mm. And in that, <laughs> it was a bit far out, but <laughs> they, you know, they said plants have some kind of a, maybe a awareness, mm. um, which is you know, quite an extreme comment. Mm. Um, but you, you can't help but develop a relationship with your Plants, whether mm. you're growing a few plants in your backyard or your house, or or a farmer mm. um, growing your crops, mm-hmm. you just you know. I worked on a as an intern on a farm ten years ago, um, full time, and the farmer Johan would go and walk the field, and we would walk with him. And we would you know see how things are doing, what what needs to be tended to. But gosh. And I worked in the, and I, one of, part of my job then was to be in the greenhouse to water plants. And, and one day I was in the greenhouse. My brother came to visit me at the farm. I didn't know. And he, and he came right up behind me in the greenhouse. I didn't see him there. He said, Peter, you were so meditative as you were watering the, those plants. So, yeah, there's some connection with plants mm. that, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's deep. <laughs> Well, you know, that, that what you just mentioned there about an awareness that the plants have, that makes perfect sense to me. We've all heard about the uh, uh, trees that, that uh, communicate with one another. We hear about the root systems of plants that they can they can send messages along, I guess, and, and those yeah. kind of things. So, yeah, it, it's all really interesting. There's a lot. There's a lot. So another like deep, like, yeah, deeper thing is this importance of when you're when we're celebrating our garlic here we're just, we're also celebrating our farmers and all the other things that grow and and where does that all come from the soil mm. the soil is so important mm-hmm. and and it's important for our ecosystem our food comes from it and we need to think about about that and are we doing everything we can to protect our soil there's a there's a rich universe going on in the soil you know we know more about faraway galaxies maybe than what's a meter <laughs> under our feet 
That's interesting. Of course, water is another uh, very important um, thing that uh, is being challenged right now that we need to do something about. Uh, Absolutely. We, we just need to start paying a lot more attention to our to the world around us, the natural world, and uh, and making sure we take care of it because it takes care of us, right? Yes. Yes. So, Peter, I have a question for you. Is there, can there ever be uh, too much garlic in, in something? Well, that is a... <laughs> great quote by someone um there's no such thing as too much garlic right. but uh th- so there's a recipe um i think james beard first made it popular um chicken with with 40 cloves mm. um and so depending on how you cook the garlic you can blanch it and mm. really mellows it mm-hmm. um with a cooking process the cooking process and heat reduces the amount of allicin in the garlic. And it's mm. the allicin that accounts for that strong flavor. Mm. But, but when you subject it to heat, say above 140 degrees Fahrenheit, it's, it's less intense. So mm. there's no such thing as too much garlic, depending on how you deal with it. I, uh, you know, I seldom eat, I might eat a whole clove of raw garlic from time to time. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't recommend anyone do more than that at, right. at a single setting. Right. But you could eat a lot of roasted garlic. You could eat a whole roasted garlic bulb. Right. A whole ro- so here's the thing you can do for Ontario Garlic Week. Roast a, at home. Go and buy a bulb of garlic from the farmer at the farmer's market and roast it in your oven. Mm-hmm. Um, put some cheese on it or mm. try other things, some pepper and olive oil, mm-hmm. um, and eat the whole thing. Yeah. Or two. Yeah, gone out and had that. Uh, it, it's mighty tasty. So I'm wondering, you know, as, as people start to, to put this together, is there going to be awards? Is there going to be uh, any kind <laughs> of, a, you know, a best recipe? Or, or how is that all going to, is there going to be a way for people to actually participate um, virtually or, or live at all? Oh, yeah. Well, like I say, um, for, for someone who I uh, just suggested, you know, if you want to participate in Ontario Garlic Week and you, mm-hmm. someone, you know, you don't have a restaurant, just yeah. do something at home with your garlic, share it online with us. Um, and, you know, it's a good question about awards. We, this, this happened very quickly because right. of COVID. Right. And yes. Thanks to a grant from the Ministry of Tourism. So we had to, we had to like turn on a dime. Right. Um, this is our inaugural year. So mm-hmm. we have a book of ideas of, well, how, what are we, how are we going to, do an even greater job of this in 2022 and right. beyond for this to be an annual event. Right. Um, yeah. But for this year, we've got a really solid base of locations. And what's really exciting is they're dotted all across the yeah. Ontario map. Yeah. Uh, so Ontario Garlic Week, as we mentioned, uh, from Friday, October 29th through to Sunday, November 7th. And you can go to Ontario Garlic Week uh, website. If you just, just actually Google that. It, it'll just for, Google that. Yep. Yeah. It'll, it'll come up. Now, Peter, the other thing is, of course, as you say, this, this came up very quickly because of, because of COVID. So is this something you think is going to run in tandem in the future? Or do you think that that's the Ontario Garlic Week might replace the Toronto Garlic Festival? Well, I think they'll be separate. There are, there are uh, several other um, garlic festivals in Ontario, and mm. they're, they've been around for a while, and they're mm-hmm. really important and big mm-hmm. and popular. Stratford Garlic Festival, Verona, uh, CARP. Um, and, uh, and others, um, and they've had a you know tough time like us because of COVID. So they, they, I, I predict all the garlic festivals will return in full force in 2022, including the Toronto Garlic Festival, and then Ontario Garlic Week is a separate thing where 
you know, if you're, if you're uh, like one of our participants is in Barry's Bay, mm. which is far north, mm. um, they, through Ontario Garlic Week, they can participate in a celebration of garlic from their location in, in Barry's Bay while, while the other garlic festivals do their thing. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, we just talked about you can never have too much garlic, but I'm wondering now about if you sat down to to look at some of the recipes that are going to be prepared from dishes that might be an appetizer to a main course to a dessert with a beverage, uh, maybe both uh, non-alcoholic as well as alcoholic uh, and a dessert. Um, would that be too much garlic at one sitting, do you think? Good question. I think it depends on how you. Um... So here's one. Royal Tea on King in Midland is doing an apple garlic quiche, a garlic scone. Mm. And it's and they're going to um, work on some some flavors incorporating garlic for the scone and a garlic infused clotted cream. Oh, wow! so you'd think, well, that's too many. That's <laughs> overwhelming. But, you know, if you use, say, a raw chopped garlic in the quiche. Mm. And maybe your garlic-infused clotted cream is using black garlic. Mm. You 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 can pick up these different. You know, you almost need a sommelier to describe the the variety of flavors that of of garlic flavors right. that you can evince from garlic and in right. these different dishes. Yeah. So that so so the answer is yes. You can have a lot of garlic in a in a in a course, in a full course meal, and but used in different ways. And yeah. It's not too much garlic. This is sort of, it's not really off topic, but it's kind of a, a something that popped into my head when you, you mentioned the word big. And the first thing that popped into me was an, an oversized garlic bulb. Uh, I'm just wondering, are there any such things of, of that kind of nature where there have been fluke garlics that have been massively grown or, or anything like that? So I have a great picture I'll, I'll send to you afterward. It's, I've got a, it's a picture of, uh, a really big bulb next to a really small one. Mm. And it's kind of like mud and Jeff. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, you can have, there's some, there are vari- the varieties that I mentioned earlier on. And music garlic is a very popular strain grown here. It's a porcelain variety mm. and they tend to be quite large um, versus Matechi is another type that can be quite small. So just in their nature, they, they can be big or small from mm. one strain to the other. But then there are some exceptions that are, quite big and that can that can happen because of the season the terroir you know there are variations in in climate and weather and soil every year that produces different outcomes Mm. in your crop Mm. and and one of those can be this the size of the garlic right but but a big uh uh, whether the bulb is big or small doesn't affect the flavor Mm. um you can have a small a small here's the thing People think they, they just want a big garlic bulb, you know, smaller, small bulbs are great because you just crush the whole bulb quickly right. and easily. Right. And, um, and, and, uh, and if you only want a small amount of garlic at a time, you could just take a mm-hmm. glow from a small bulb. Peter, it's been really great talking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and talk to us about the Ontario Garlic Week that's running from Friday, October 29th through to Sunday, November 7th. Thanks, David. You've, you've made me like even more excited now for Ontario Garden Week. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Happy to hear that. Congratulations, Sue. Thank you. All right. You take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
And that, of course, is uh, Peter McCluskey. He is the founder of uh, the Toronto Garlic Festival. And now, of course, he is the founder of the Ontario Garlic Week, which runs from Friday, October 29th through to Sunday, November 7th. You can find out more by going to the website of the, uh, just Google Ontario Garlic Week, and that will bring you right there. You can find out more. You can find out about participating. you got a menu. If you got a recipe you want to share around garlic, it has to be Ontario Garlic, though. It has to be Ontario garlic that is this portion of the show please don't go away we're going to be right back with more moment of truth right after these messages now back to moment of truth with david moses element 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 fm Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto and 95.7 in Ottawa. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show David Webster. He is a history professor at Bishop's University and adjunct research professor at Carleton University. His books include Challenge, The Strong Wind, Canada and East Timor, 1975-99, and Fire and the Full Moon, Canada and Indonesia in a Decolonizing World. Now, I'm here to talk to David about an article he authored in The Conversation. It is entitled, Ming for the Two Michaels, Lessons for the World from the China-Canada Prison Swaps. So it's a pleasure to have David here, but a little more about him before I introduce him. He is the editor of Flowers in the Wall, and he is also a, fel- a fellow uh, of the Wilson Institute for Canadian History at McMaster University, the Graham Centre for Contemporary International History at the University of Toronto, and the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. So it's a pleasure to welcome David to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for uh, the invitation to talk. You bet. So your article, Ming, for the two Michaels, and it really made me think about the rise of China to a superpower. And, you know, a couple of things come to mind is how this happened and why it happened. Uh, of course, economy comes to mind and certainly trade comes to mind. And certainly the idea of uh, using China for cheap labor and those kind of things, which I, I imagine had a lot to do with uh, China's ability to uh, infiltrate itself throughout the world, although there's always a cost to no matter what we do. Um, what is your take on that? Well, there's a, there's a lot there. I, China has had a rise to being a superpower, and the reasons that you mentioned are certainly part of that. Um, but in China, they talk about a peaceful rise, uh, meaning that China hasn't become one of the world's major powers as a result of uh, military power or right. a conquest or of winning wars, but as a consequence of its own non, non-military actions. Yeah. Um, and they also talk about this as a return to the center, um, because in a global context for most of human history, um, since the creation of uh, of uh, separate states, China has been at the uh, center of the world economy, at the center of world politics. Mm. And that only began to change with the, uh, the rise of European domination and American domination. So from the point of view of many in China, superpower is the natural status of the country. Mm. And it's been an aberration that China was not a superpower <laughs> for the uh, 19th and t- much mm. of the 20th centuries. Right. Um, and peacefully it's risen back to, I think it's rightful place, um, many in China would say. Uh, now, to your article, of course, uh, through this two Michael process uh, and, and uh, the tit for tat that was going on with Ming Wanzhou, uh, you point out uh, how China has emerged as the big winner, quietly signaling, of course, uh, its willingness to exchange prisoners 
that it had had done for some time, and it, it surprised some pendants that uh, that this happened so quickly. But that that the the message from China was, yeah, we're not afraid to show you that we're doing this specifically to make the point of what we're trying to say is, don't mess with us. Right. Well, I think that is the message. It hasn't、uh, been stated openly,、right. but. I do. I do believe that China is seeking to have the same rights and the same privileges and the same ability to make international norms that currently、uh, are claimed only by the United States.、Mm-hmm. Um, it wants to be part of a rules-based international order, but it wants to be able to make the rules as well as take the, the rules, follow the rules.、Um, and so, although this is not officially a case of hostage diplomacy, not. Officially, a case、mm. for ho- a foster's exchange. Right. right. The timing to me suggests that it actually was in practice an exchange, I and mean, that it is in practice China sending message to the world that、uh, we'll swap hostages.、Um, but、uh, as you said, don't mess with us because we will break the rules if we need to.、Um, that's what great powers. That's what superpowers do. You know, this idea that China wasn't a superpower. Is now coming back to its rightful place. Is that it, it, so? In doing so, even though it has risen through peaceful means,、uh, is now looking at a more、um, uh, aggressive form of of communication in dealing with other countries and and don't mess with us.、Uh, so, are you seeing a change there, or is this something that we're just now becoming aware of because we had this this、uh, situation develop? I think China has always had policies of this nature, but we are seeing it a lot more now.、Mm. Um, you know, when、uh, when Britain in、uh, during the late sixties, early seventies, the Cultural Revolution was going on, including in Hong Kong, Britain took、um, some Chinese citizens,、uh, um, arrested them for、uh, taking part in anti-government protests, and China retaliated by arresting. Uh, the only British journalist in the country, and holding him in house arrest for、uh, um, over seven hundred days, so、yes. more than a couple of years.、Yes. Um, so China's always used this tactic and always been fairly open about it.、Um, but it's much more visible now、um, because China's much more powerful now than it was fifty、mm. years ago.、Mm. Um, you know, you can't ignore China if you're thinking about world politics anymore. You certainly can't if you're thinking about any aspect of the world economy. So it's come much, much more back to the center, right?、Um, and we hear talk now about、uh, there was a movie Wolf Warrior a few years back that came out as、oh, a、yeah. um, Rambo style movie, except the heroes were Chinese instead of American because、mm. it was a Chinese movie instead of an American. Right. <laughs>、um, so you hear people talking now about Wolf Warrior diplomacy that China is、yes. willing to、um, not speak humbly in the international scene, but to、mm. speak aggressively where necessary and to、right. swagger. If that seems appropriate to、right. promoting China's interests,、right. so Chinese diplomats were famed for being quietly polite for many, many years. And、um, the Chinese ambassador to Canada or to any other country is going to frequently now speak in a much less humble manner than once once the case. So that's a change of tone, yeah, along with the、uh, the continuities. Yeah. Now you mentioned retaliation, China retaliating, and China was retaliating in terms of what Canada had done as well. So has it been only in a in a retaliatory manner that has taken this stance,、uh, or has has it been the aggressor in terms of of moving first? You know, or has it only been in reaction to things that have happened? Yeah, that's.、Um... <laughs> That's always tricky to say because everybody always says in a conflict, everybody always says the other guy started it. <laughs>、right. um, so it's like kids fighting, right? <laughs>、yeah. um, 
you know, but these are not children. These are mm. governments with uh, yeah. major uh, capacity to do good or harm at their yeah. disposal. So, yes. uh, um, you know, from the point of view of Canada, the Chinese started the conflict that we had with them over uh, Meng Wanzhou, even though Canada made the first arrest. Um, Canada was acting in accordance with uh, its own uh, its own law and international law. And the government of China said, well, no, we're by arresting two Canadians, we're acting in accordance with uh, with our interests and with international law. So, um, you know, it's tit for tat is uh, always also a question of uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really hard to say. Has China ever acted aggressively? Certainly. I mean, I mentioned yep. in 1979, it invaded Vietnam. Yep. Uh, poor decision. It was not uh, successful in gaining its goals. Um, so China does act aggressively on occasion. Um, China's policy more commonly has been to quietly increase its power and its position in the international system. And when somebody challenges it to respond. So it has been um, an expanding, peacefully expanding in many cases outside of its borders, mm. much less so within, but an expanding economic and political power that responds when somebody does something that China's government sees as trying to stop its peaceful rise. Mm. So arresting someone who's been characterized as one of the princesses of Chinese business, uh, Meng Wanzhou, Absolutely. That was seen as a challenge to uh, China's peaceful economic rise and mm -hmm. China retaliated. And usually there is a retaliation going on. Mm. So, yeah, you know, hard to say, but I think the retaliation is what China sees itself as doing, standing up for itself, but not causing the conflicts. But of course, when in any conflict, there's two sides to the conflict. So it's seen differently from the other side. Yes, of course, and uh, and and we are seeing all of that, and we did see all of that play out in in front of us, of course. Um, I'm I'm not sure, David, if you can answer this question, but it is something that came to mind when I was reading through the article and reading through the history and and trying to understand all this. What what role did did the external world play in in China's rise and being able to you know uh, expand its peaceful rise uh, worldwide. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, under uh, Mao Zedong, so the first leader of the People's Republic of China, uh, declared in 1949, um, Mao's government tended to push for things like self-reliant development and not being drawn into the world capitalist system that mm. reached its uh, pinnacle or its uh, worst point, depending how you look at it, during the Cultural Revolution, when uh, many Chinese suffered because the country was seeking uh, economic growth without um, without many connections to the global economy, because they wanted to build a, a communist state without connections to the capitalist world. That was unsuccessful. Mao's successor, ultimate successor, not immediate successor, but uh, the man who came to power and governed for an extensive period afterward, Deng Xiaoping, um, changed course and agreed to establish uh, diplomatic relations uh, first with Canada in 1970 and then soon afterwards with the United States. Um, and the Chinese economic path became a rise economically 
within the context of the global trading system. Mm -hmm. So China, in some ways, became capitalist in order to grow, mm -hmm. which was the opposite of Mao's strategy. Right. But this is Deng Xiaoping's strategy. Mm -hmm. He is said to have said that, you know, it doesn't matter if the cat is black or white. What matters is it catches mice. So it's a pragmatic stance. Mm -hmm. We're going to increase prosperity in our country and we're going to do it by doing whatever works. Mm. And, you know, you started off by mentioning cheap labor. This is one of China's early competitive advantages. Mm -hmm. It's cheaper to have a factory with low paid workers not allowed to organize and tra into trade unions mm -hmm. in China. That's much cheaper than uh, having a factory in Ontario. Right. So jobs tended to flow to the cheap, to where they were cheaper and where there was uh, less chance of uh, labor activism. So they tended to flow to China. Um, and that's facilitated by the nature of the global trading system because business goes where the costs are low, um, all, other, all other things being equal. So you know, we hear about offshoring and so on. So yeah. there was a, certainly a move of employment, a move of cash, a move of business um, from the developed world, the wealthiest countries to China. And as a result, China has grown enormously. So the rise of China is completely part of its decision to connect with the international system and to uh, accept the rules. But what's changed, I think, is that China is now strong enough that it doesn't have to do that anymore. It can now be, instead of seeking business from overseas, it can now be the country that people petition for business. And that's, you know. It's in a Canada-China relationship. It's Canada that's now the uh, <laughs> the one asking for a chance to take part in the prosperity, right? Uh, a weaker partner, which is not how Canadians are used to relating to China. It's the case now. Yeah, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is David Webster. He's a history professor at Bishop's University and adjunct research professor at Carleton University. And I'm talking to him about an article he authored in The Conversation. It is entitled, Ming for the Two Michaels, Lessons for the World from the China-Canada Prison Swap. You can find that on The Conversation if you go to the uh, uh, conversation.ca website and read all about it there. And uh, it's a pleasure to have David on on the show talking about this and elaborating on it and talking about other things as well. David, you, you talked about um, uh, human rights. And of course, uh, we did hear some of that a, a little while ago uh, when Canada was criticizing China. And of course, China did come back, uh, like you say, and say, well, don't talk to us about uh, human rights when you, you have your own, uh, your own history with Indigenous people that you have not done well with. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think the indigenous people's human rights question is a uh, is an important one. Um, you might recall that uh, Canada's parliament recently uh, condemned China for carrying out a genocide. They said against the uh, the Uyghur people who mm -hmm. live in uh, mm -hmm. what's now called what's now Xinjiang in northwestern China, um, but is also the uh, traditional homeland of the Uyghur people. Mm. Um, these, and here we have an indigenous people, um, and Canada's spoken out for them. But then the Chinese government can say, and justifiably perhaps, um, Canada's treatment of its own, um, Canada's treatment of the first peoples of the land that's now occupied by Canada um, has not exactly been um, something to celebrate. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we see that again and again and again with... Uh, um, unmarked graves this year and with mm -hmm. uh, continued abuses and with land disputes and with pipelines and 
if you can vote, okay, that's political democracy. But is there equal rights for Indigenous people in Canada? You certainly can't really say that there is. Um, so if you look from a different perspective, you could say here's two states that are both badly mistreating Indigenous peoples and both doing it on lands that were never uh, surrendered, that they mm. just took mm. um, without any justification. So perhaps what we really need to do is both countries critically examine their own situations and uh, start to listen more and behave a little less paternalistically towards the, uh, the Uyghur or the mm. Haudenosaunee mm. or the Tibetans or the Wet'suwet'en. Mm. Um, you can make a lot of parallels here, I think. Right. And uh, yeah. perhaps both countries have the opportunity to improve their, to mutually improve their records on human rights. Right. Um, rather than each accusing the other of yeah. <laughs> violations. Right. True. And, and on that note of, of human rights, uh, your article does, of course, point out, and you, you did mention this about 1997 when Canada did this about face with Jean Chrétien's government, stopping to support United Nations resolution on human rights in China and, and change to a bilateral human rights dialogue with them. And, and you say that that really changed uh, how how China was able to bury that more uh, about the human rights. I think it did, yes. I mean, I think it sent a clear message that the Canadian goal in engaging with China was, uh, was business. Mm. And certainly Jean Chrétien led numerous trade missions to China and certainly Canada-China two-way trade and investment in each country by the other grew uh, significantly. And China is now one of Canada's most important trade partners, which was not the case previously. So there's been a real change there. And the decision was quite consciously made that we'll put Canadian prosperity, meaning increased trade, ahead of uh, human rights advocacy. Mm. So Canada essentially messaged to the world that our policy is a trade policy. Our policy is not a rights-based policy. Yeah. Human rights are great, but they're a secondary factor in our foreign policy. Yeah. You know, Canada really does need, if it wants to be seen as a promoter of human rights, it needs to actually um, take concrete measures. It needs to uh, speak about human rights and not whisper about them, as Jean Chrétien did. It needs to uh, promote a consistent rights-based policy, which means integrating human rights into all aspects of its foreign policy and indeed domestic policy. So when the government talks about a feminist human rights policy and sells weapons to Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. which is not a paradise for women by any stretch of the imagination, right. it's sort of undermining its own words. So sometimes, and I think this is a concern, is that the rhetoric of human rights backed by zero actions becomes counterproductive. Right. Canada talks about human rights, but does nothing to promote them internationally. Everybody says, oh, okay, it's just Canadians mouthing off again. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. a policy of say one thing and do another. Right. When really Canadian uh, foreign policy is about promoting Canadian business interests overseas. That's why Canada is home to the uh, um, majority of the world's uh, mining companies. Um, why Canada is accused of human rights violations carried out by Canadian corporations around the world. 
and why Canada is ineffective in promoting what it says is its goal of promotion of human rights in China and in other countries. Right. Uh, now, the other thing your article touches on, uh, a number of things, uh, is this uh, AUKUS security pact between the United States, the UK and Australia. And I know I spoke with someone else about this and, and, and how it sort of was came as a surprise to Canada. Well, the AUKUS was a surprise to almost everybody except the three countries concerned. <laughs> um, <Okay. laughs> it was a shock to China, great shock to France, which mm. lost billions of dollars in and sales as a result. Um, it was a big shock. Um, should Canada have been part of it? I don't really see the logic for Canada being included in, in an agreement like that. Mm. Um, this is an arrangement which is about giving Australia nuclear-capable submarines, right. which is an area where Canada has no particular interest. Right. Um, in a broader sense, it's a security arrangement aimed against China, mm. um, which is in some ways odd because China is Australia's number one trade partner. Mm. Um, so it's a love-hate relationship there too. Mm. But why would Canada be a member of a military alliance in Asia? It never has been. Mm. There was a previous military alliance in Asia called CETO, the Southeast Asia, Defense, uh, Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. Mm -hmm. So it's a Southeast Asian counterpart to NATO. Um, it included the United States, uh, Thailand, the Philippines, some countries in Southeast Asia. It included Britain and France. It didn't include Canada. Mm. Um, Canada was uh, not interested in joining back then when it was formed. Um, Canada did not take part in the American and Australian war effort in Vietnam directly. It let some support, but there was no um, dispatch of Canadian soldiers to that war. That was an American and Australian war, not a Canadian war. Why would Canada wish to, and why should Canada be part of a military alliance in Asia? I'm not sure what interest it would be seen as serving. Mm. Uh, it doesn't promote Canadian trade. It doesn't promote human rights. Mm. It antagonizes China. Mm. Um, so it's a little unclear what its goal is beyond uh, the sale of submarines beyond uh, puffing up Australia's military stature. Mm. Um, so it's, it, it's not an arrangement that Canada should be part of um, any more than it's an arrangement that France should be part of mm. because these are not countries with substantial military involvement in South, uh, Southeast and Eastern Asia. Mm. You know, it, the argument that Canada has been left out, well, why is a bit it's a bit tautological. It kind of assumes its own answer. Why would Canada be included in such an agreement? Right. What would be Canada's interest in joining it? Right. It's not, that's not clear to me. Mm. I have heard something about uh, the North and uh, the North Passage, of course, uh, and uh, be, and that China is showing some interest in in developing or, or having some kind of a uh, of a stance in 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 that part of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, there's, uh, you know, as you know, one of the effects of climate change uh, yeah. is uh, melting mm. ice. Yeah. And uh, so the old European dream of a Northwest Passage traveling uh, north through Hudson's Bay around to Asia is uh, becoming a reality. And uh, it might become China's Northeast Passage to Europe uh, in the future uh, mm. from the point of view of Canada. <clears throat> These are internal waterways, of yeah. course. 
um, and Canada has, uh, there's not, Canada's claim that these are internal waters has never been accepted by um, larger powers that want to use those waterways. It's never been accepted by the United States, which right. says these are international waters and we have the right to send American ships through whenever we want. Right. Um, so China's stance and the, American, and the United States' stance are, are very similar here. Um, this is international waterway. Um, Canada's tried to uh, enhance its small power by working towards multilateral solutions with other countries in the north. So there's an Arctic Council, there's uh, efforts to work with uh, Denmark and Norway and others to uh, ensure that the Arctic is kept as a peaceful zone. Mm. Um, we're probably going to have to, if we want to continue that sort of multilateral strategy, we're probably going to have to bring in, bring in China as, uh, as an associate in that because it's going to want to uh, promote its trade everywhere. Um, and perhaps the argument would be, would be uh, better to have them inside the room in the conversations than outside right. causing trouble. Right. <laughs> so, you know, but yeah, I mean, we're going to have to think a lot more about uh, rare earth mining and we're going to start thinking more about seabed mining and, yeah. you know, uh, all of these issues. Right. And uh, you could probably relate Canada's claims to territorial waters in the north to China's claims to territorial waters in the South China Sea. Mm. And think globally about how we're going to handle global maritime commons. I and mean, these are the sign of discussions that need to be taking place. Mm. Um, I want to revisit the law of the sea on that, for instance. Mm. So. I'm going to get more and more general the longer I talk. So I'll <laughs> okay. Well, we're just going to finish up. So I'm just wondering in terms of the, this relationship with moving forward with China and, uh, and how it sees itself and how Canada sees itself, um, what do you think Canada needs to do in moving forward? Do you think this, this is certainly a time and a wake-up call uh, for, for Canada to now start looking at China differently and starting to perhaps educate itself differently on it? Absolutely. We need much greater awareness of China in this country, um, the same way that, I mean, Canadians are extremely well informed about American politics and American society through our media and through universities, uh, through just popular culture. Um, we don't have the same awareness of China. That needs to change. Uh, there's clearly two major powers in the world, and we need to be um, at least half as well aware of China as we are of the United States. And that's going to take so a lot of uh, education, a lot of deliberate plans to make Canadians more aware about what China is so that while not agreeing with China's strategies, we can at least understand where they're coming from and try to think about how to address them. So that's really important. We need to speak and act in compatible fashions. Talking a lot about human rights and actually prioritizing trade has not helped Canada's relationship with China. It's uh, led to some troubles. We need to actually think about how we relate that and probably end up with a situation where human rights promotion is an integral aspect of all aspects of our foreign policy, which, need, which is a change that will need to be made. So we need more understanding of China. We need more um, consistency in foreign policy making rather than changing tack every time there's a new government. Mm. And, you know, I think I could actually end by saying it would be great if when we talk about foreign policy in an election, we could talk about relations with China and not just relations with the United States. We mm. could talk about 
broader concerns. We could talk about being aware that Canada is a country that depends on the world for its prosperity. And therefore, we need to think more about foreign policy when we're choosing our own direction for our own country. So, you know, we need to talk about it during and between federal elections as well. Right. All right, David, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and uh, talk to us about this, your article in the conversation, Ming for the Two Michaels, Lessons for the World from the China-Canada Prison Swap. And if people want to learn more or read more about that article, they can go to theconversation.ca and find that article there. And uh, you have other articles that you've uh, authored there as well, so people can check everything you've done out there. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show, and I want to thank you. And uh, we look forward to having you back on the show again in the future. Thanks very much. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Take care. Bye-bye. David Webster is a history professor at Bishop's University and adjunct research professor at Carleton University, and it's been a pleasure to have him back on the show talking to him, and we look forward, as I say, to have him back on the show again. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.